Hello, everyone. This is Life Over Coffee, and I am Rick Thomas. I have a complex question for you. I want to share it with you. So let me give you the title of the article that I have written, and then I want to work through it. You're welcome to watch this article as I produce it in video. You can listen to the podcast, of course, and you can read it. I would encourage you to read it because, again, it is complex. We're going to go to that very difficult book in the New Testament called Hebrews, and there are some complications there that have been troubling many people. The question was put forth to me, and so I have titled this article this way, I met a Christian who refuses to walk away from his sin, and there is the dilemma. Is he a Christian? Was he ever a Christian? Can a Christian walk away from Christ? Well, I want to talk about it. Thank you so much for joining me. Can a Christian walk away from God? To help work through this question, we must first recognize and accept that Christianity is not that neat and sin has never been that respectable to our preferences. We also have to admit that this conversation is subjective in nature. We cannot know what is happening in a person's heart and all the ancillary issues that contribute to why a person would accept and then reject Christ. Let's restate that in your mind again. I'll shorten what I just said. We can't know. This is a subjective argument. And so we want to be very, very careful when we think about people, when we thought they were one way, but they are not that way any longer. Were they ever that way in the past? Did they ever know Christ? Well, the Hebrew writer is suggesting that there can be this kind of Christian, a believer who spurns the grace he once received for whatever reason. He does it. What does it mean? How are we to think about friends who reject Christ? I recently counseled a man addicted to his sin. He was living a self-centered, self-serving lifestyle that kept Christ from ruling his heart. It was not that long ago when he professed Christ. He said he was a believer, and then he made a sinful choice to love his sin, which became a controlling preference that now dominates him, and he was sitting in my counseling office with his wife. Of course, there are a few people who know him, who have said that he was never saved, It would sound something like this. He made a profession but did not have the possession of Christ. Now, a person can indeed acknowledge the facts about Christ while not possessing the transforming power of the gospel. Yes, that is true. This problem has been called intellectual assent, a person giving consent to the truth claims of the gospel, but not experiencing regeneration by them. I suppose that many people are Christianized, but not truly transformed. I mean, surely that is going to be the case. We, we kind of get a clue about that in Matthew 7, uh, verse number 21. It says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And so what if we spent some time wrestling through this subjective truth that some of our friends who love their sin more than Christ?
Perhaps if we started the conversation with a few questions, that that might be helpful. And so let me begin by asking five questions to get the ball rolling. Number one, cannot being a Christian be the only answer for my friend in this counseling situation who loves his sin more than he loves the Christ that he formerly professed as having, cannot be a Christian be the only answer. Number two, is there only one category for a person who persists in a sinful lifestyle while tacitly hanging around the Christian community? Number three, can a person walk away from genuine faith? I did not say, can they lose their salvation? Can they walk away from genuine faith? Number four, How do you make sense of a person who once walked with Christ but has since fallen away? And then finally, number five, is there any responsibility on the believer regarding the perseverance of the saints? The doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Speaking of secondary causes, we are not the main actors. We're not the primary cause. For by grace are we saved. God initiates and causes salvation to happen. But do we just let go and let God? Do we have no responsibility whatsoever? Well, in the book of Hebrews, what does the call to hold fast to your salvation mean if the interpretation is not for us to hold fast onto our faith? If it doesn't mean that, what does it mean? Talking about the perseverance of the saints. No doubt God perseveres for us. That is, he is the primary cause, but aren't we supposed to cooperate with him as secondary cause agents by persisting in our sanctification? The Hebrew writer observed his brothers and sisters turning and walking away from the faith. And he he did not mix mince words, but gave them stern warnings to those who did not want to follow the Savior anymore. The writer was willing and able to live in the theological tension of, for by grace are you saved, that is Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, and here's the tension, you must hold fast to your confession of faith, that is Hebrews 10, 23. Here are some of the more explicit passages in Hebrews that speak to our call of active obedience. That is what we're talking about. Some people might say that passive obedience is the let go, let God mantra. It's a little more complicated than that, but the two obediences that we tend to talk about is passive obedience, which is God working in us. And then there is active obedience. James talked about this, faith without works is dead. And so I want you to hear and to reflect on these explicit passages in Hebrews that speak to our need, our call for active obedience. Think through primary and secondary causes. Do you see God's perseverance and our responsibility to hold on? How do you reconcile those two seemingly antagonistic ideas? Here's Hebrews 3, 6. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. 
and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Here's Hebrews 4.14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Are you hearing primary calls and secondary calls? How about Hebrews 6.18? So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to our hope set or to the hope set before us. And then finally, 1023, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful, primary, secondary causes. There seems to be no question The Hebrew writer is talking to genuine Christians, the people that he's talking to in this book. His language in Hebrews 10, if you read verses 26 through 39, the points that he's making, talking about the prior, the language is talking about the prior redemptive work of God on behalf of his audience. Kind of what you read in Philippians 1.6, what God has begun, he is going to finish. There's no question that God, some point in the past, started that prior regenerative work. He regenerated them in the past. Not only does the writer lump himself in the group of people who could walk away from the faith, but he uses salvific and robust language to talk about God's past regenerative work in their lives. He's not leaning into vague or arbitrary profession language. His words communicate possession language. Check out these verses here. Verse 26, I'm in Hebrews 10. If we go on sinning, note the pronoun we. He includes himself with them. Verse 26 again, they have received the knowledge of the truth. Talking about past regenerative work. Verse 29, they were sanctified. Verse 32, they were enlightened. The author of Hebrews is doing what he wants them to do for each other, to bring stern warnings regarding the danger of choosing sin while walking away from Christ. This kind of writing he is using is the kind of communication I would use for myself or any other born-again follower of Christ. Don't walk away. How different is his language from what you might use? If you talk to a friend who was considering walking away from the faith or living in objective sin, Hebrews 10, 26 For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, we have received the knowledge of the truth, there there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. 10.31, it is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God. Hebrews 10.38 and 39, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve preserve their souls. This situation, however, does create attention as we ask, 
Can we be eternally secure and in danger of walking away from our faith? We all know how Christians experience salvation by grace through faith in the works of Jesus Christ. To have justification, as we read in Romans 8, verses 29 and 30, we exercise faith, not works, and is seen in many passages throughout the New Testament. Romans 1, 17, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, I mentioned earlier, Titus 3, 5. Salvation is not losable. We all know this. But the writer of Hebrews is bringing a strong warning to those God sanctified, enlightened, and have the knowledge of the truth. And he includes himself in the number of those who need to be warned by the use of the pronouns, we. He does not say that God condemns us as though we would go to hell. He's not saying that at all for walking away from God, but he is clear. The Lord is not pleased when we mock his gospel. He is not happy about people who continue in willful sin. Chuck Swindoll said it this way, God disciplines his children harshly when they continue in willful defiance. And he does so in one or two ways. Either he takes their lives, or he judiciously sentences them to live out their lives experiencing the consequences of their sin. The writer of Hebrews is making a strong appeal hoping that they will know how this stubborn refusal to walk away from sin will cause God's anger to come down on them. Walking away from God tramples the Son of God underfoot. It's an insult to the Spirit of grace who enlighten you to see the Son in the first place. It would be a travesty, an insult, and mockery to show no gratitude, no humility, no obedient response to the one who gave his life to save us. How can any of us say there is more life in our sin than in Christ alone? This concept is why I appeal to my counselee, who was more in love with his sin than, than the Savior. There is no place in the Bible where it means there is grace for the consequences of sin, there is not grace for the consequences of sin. If we choose to willfully walk away, this is what the quote with Chuck Swindoll was saying, that he judiciously sentences them to live out their lives experiencing the consequences of their sin. There will be severe consequences for a defiant believer insulting the spirit of grace who is trying to draw you back. But you do not care and you refuse. To walk away from your sin is to trample underfoot the grace of God that can save you from the consequences of stubbornness. My friend was in a dangerous place. He came to counseling buzzed, flippant, snarky, sarcastic, sarcastic, even comical about the counseling. His wife was crying. My soul was sad for both of them. I am not ready to say that he was unsaved. I do not feel that, that God or his gospel needed theological protection by me casually categorizing him as having made a profession, but he did not possess Jesus. This kind of thinking could be a gospel travesty. Maybe 
there are more than two Christian types, those who authentically believe in Jesus and never, ever, ever walk away, or those who say they believe in Jesus and can walk away. Christianity is not that neat. And sin has never been that respectful of our preferred categories. The Hebrew writer is saying that there is a a third type of Christian, a believer who, for whatever reasons, spurns the grace he once received. The writer did not want to dilute the gospel by protecting it from the possibility of this kind of abuse. To not embrace this third type of Christian is to presume against God's grace. You and I experience temptation every day. We're under pressure while suffering the ebb and flow of victory and defeat throughout our lives. It it may keep our Christianity and our theology in tight and neat packages, but it can be a massive disservice to the body of Christ. No one is exempt from the cursedness of life, whether the curse comes from our hearts or the world we live in, even the believers' hearts. At the time of the writing of the book of Hebrews, the believers were under persecution. They believed in Christ by faith and maybe even enjoyed a refreshing time through Christ and their community. But in time, The cares and troubles of life began to mount, and some of them decided to walk away from Christ. It would have been easy, but it would not have served them. The Hebrew writer was not going to categorize them willy-nilly as false converts. Can you see how dangerous it is not to warn a person of the consequences of walking away from God? The ones who walked away would not have received the warning of the impending danger of spurning their faith. Those still persevering needed to know the risk of this kind of thinking, this kind of decision-making, this kind of living— To wipe your hands of them does not help them or those who may yet choose sin over Christ. The Hebrew writer would not check the theological box of God never saved them in the first place and move on to the next thing. His heart was broken, which is why his language was so severe. He gave you, he gave me a threefold call action regarding our friends. His first point was to consider those in your immediate community of faith. You see this in the passage, again, going back to Hebrews 10. He says to consider, to confront, and to comfort. In 10, 24, 25, it says this, let us consider how to stir up one another to loving good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. Let's consider them. This is what the Hebrew writer was doing, and he did not mix his words. A couple of questions here. How much time do you spend during your day considering those you can impact by the gospel? As you work through your friend list, you're not judging them uncharitably, harshly unkindly at all, but you are judging them, you're assessing them, you are considering them. Let us consider. We are considering how we can stir up one another to loving good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And so how much time do we spend during our day considering those that we can impact by the gospel? And maybe another way to think about that question is to ask it this way. Do your friends feel considered by you? Maybe you could 
ask them. That would be a, a wonderful leadership opportunity for you. Do you feel considered by me? If you're in a family dynamic, if you have a spouse, if you have children, maybe you could ask them the same question. Do, do you feel like I consider you in a charitable way, a sober-minded way that cares for your soul? Let us consider how to stir one another up. There is no question. These Hebrews believers, they felt considered by the writer of this book. He could not have been more clear. He understood them. He understood their history. He understood their lifestyles and their temptations. He considered them. He did not hold back from giving them careful consideration while laying out a clear plan to keep persevering in the faith that God had granted them prior. It would be a joy to be in the Hebrew writer, the writer of this book, to be in his small group. One of the big disappointments in today's church is how brothers and sisters will not give up the time needed to consider how to stir up each other to loving good deeds. And so the Hebrew writer is saying, consider, and then he says, confront, verses 26 and 27. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Have your friends experienced your carefully considered corrective care? Do your friends clearly understand the consequences of their actions because you have warned them? There is no place for harshness within the Christian community. If you want to know how to warn without being mean-spirited about it, then carefully read this passage. You feel the writer's affection for the people. Read Hebrews 10. You feel it. You sense it. You know it. He says some of the sternest and most direct things that you can speak to a person, but you do not feel talked down to or verbally assaulted. He loved those people enough to warn them about the possibilities of their actions. He was like a father to them. Any good father would warn a son or daughter about the dangers in our world and the consequences of choosing those risks. And so we are to consider one another to stir them up. We are to confront them because there is a fearful expectation of judgment and fury of fire. And then we are to comfort, verses 32 and 33. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. The Hebrew writer was not like a hit-and-run driver. He was with them, willing to stick it out for their good and God's glory. He confronted and he comforted. He reminded them of the efficacious grace of God that was evident in their lives. He wanted them to know how God will be with them in the future by reminding them how he was with them in the past. He identified evidence of God's gracious activity in their lives. When you consider and when you confront your friends, do they experience your comfort? 
a follow-up question. Would you be categorized more as a critical corrector or a comforting confronter? A Christian can turn his nose to God and walk away from the faith. That does not mean he has a broken relationship with God, though he may sever his fellowship with God and may sever his fellowship with others. It also means there will be consequences for taking God's grace for granted, not presuming on God's grace. We cannot do that. May we all be warned. May we all respond by graciously seeking to change ourselves while carefully considering others within our faith communities. In Hebrews 12, 8, it says, if you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are an illegitimate child. We are illegitimate children and not sons. God disciplines those whom he loves. And if we do not experience the discipline of God when we walk away from him, either in an episodic way where we sin in a moment, and we experience the consequences or the conviction of God and we return to him, we can also be disciplined in a long-term fashion because it is not an episode anymore. It is a pattern of sin. We are walking away from the faith, still possessing the gift that was given prior. We will we will receive the corrective hand of God. We will be disciplined, or if we are not, then, well, as Hebrews 12, 8 says, we are illegitimate children. And then the Hebrew writer finishes in 1031 by saying, it is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God. May that be our warning. This article I just shared with you, I met a Christian who refuses to walk away from his sin. These are some of the things that I shared with him. He may or may not be a believer. I don't know because, as I said at the very beginning, this is a subjective analysis, and we are not omniscient. We cannot know the hearts, but we want to be careful about creating two categories and protecting God. It could be that people possess Christ and never walk away. It could be that people profess Christ and walk away, but they don't have the possession. It is also true that you can possess Christ and walk away. And this is where you want to give that person a warning because they need to know if you are God's child, there will be discipline that will come down. The heavy, handed of, uh, heavy hand of God will come down on you. As Chuck Swindoll was saying, God could take your life away or in a very judicious manner permit you to live the consequences of your actions even though you are God's child. I do believe that uh, I this is possibly what has happened to uh, my two brothers who were murdered, and I'm not trying to wish them into heaven at all, but there is a possibility, and I'm pretty confident that one of them is a, a Christian, and I tend to think that it is possible that the other one became a Christian, but both of them refused to walk away from their sin, and I would see uh, it, there is a possibility that they were children of God and they were murdered. 
that God took their life in his wisdom, seeing that the shortening of their life was best for them and everyone else. And so he took their life through murder as they lived the consequences of sin. Now, there is no question that their murders was the consequences of actions that they were making. But it is possible that they could work within this framework. When I get to heaven, uh, that is one of the things that I will most definitely find out. I fully anticipate seeing one of my brothers there. It is possible, based on some things that I learned after my first brother was murdered, that it is possible that he became a believer and he chose not to walk away from his sin. I did have that conversation with him. Uh, it was in April of 1987, and he was murdered in in June of 1987, I believe is the timeline, but it was uh, Palm Sunday uh, when I had that conversation with him. He, he did attend a church meeting, and he said basically that he could not or would not, he he would not cease from his sinning. There were some things that he wanted to do, and within three months of that, uh, someone had murdered him. There were other things that happened as well, and that's why it would not be a surprise for me to uh, get in heaven and see both of my brothers there, that they suffered the consequences of their sinful uh, lifestyle uh, as believers, but we shall see. But this is a stern warning, and again, we want to carefully consider our friends, and if there are friends or even us that are walking away from the faith or choosing to be disobedient episodically or as a pattern, we want to heed the warning. You have been listening to Life Over Coffee with Rick Thomas. If you have a question for Rick, you can let him know by sending him a note through his website, rickthomas.net. That's rickthomas.net. Thanks for listening. Enjoy your coffee.